0: So we are in this sermon series that Brian kicked off for us last week, encountering encounters with Jesus. And um, as we get into this, I just uh, one of the things that um, that I want to talk about leading into the text today is is the great need for grain and bread. Uh, you may know this, you may not, but uh, Russia's war against Ukraine has led to a grain shortage because Ukraine supplies a lot of the world's grain, and especially to Europe. Um, The United States is also, of course, one of the largest suppliers of of grain, but nearly three-quarters of farmers report that they're seeing lower yields over the last few years due to the drought that has happened across the country. And what that means is that the poor are not getting grain distributions, right? Where there's organizations trying to reach and take grain to the poorest of the poor, There's not grain enough to take to get there. And so they are without bread that they need. And you and I probably don't feel that as acutely because we can go to the store and get bread. And we're part of the richest 1% globally. But you do feel it in a way because when you do go to the store and get bread, you're like, man, why does that cost so much? And you feel it in your wallet. But you're fed. And so it's a real issue. For the world food insecurity it's a real issue for the world will they have enough bread to eat you ask similar questions right And it might not be about bread it would just be something else that you'd fill in the blank for will i have enough fill in the blank will i have enough of this to make me feel safe will i have this to make me feel secure will i have the place that i want to live the retirement that i want Will I have the kids that I want? Will I have the boyfriend or girlfriend that I want? Will I have enough? Will I be satisfied? Will I be nourished and happy? Will I have enough? When I'm in a car accident, like I was this week, fine, minor car accident, when you have open heart surgery, is God enough? When you face a cancer diagnosis, is God enough? When you experience the loss of a friend or a loved one, is God enough? It's nothing new, of course. People across the ages and around the world have, at, have been asking this question. Is whatever the greatest thing that there is, is, is the gods or God, is God enough? Can he be enough for me? For instance, the Egyptian god Ra, you may remember this from a couple of years ago in a sermon series we did, but the e- Egyptian sun god Ra is often portrayed in a boat, traveling around, up and down, around the world. So, by day, when it's, when it's daylight, and then in the underworld at night, when it's dark and back and forth. And part of the significance of that for that Egyptian cycle is that it's Pharaoh who keeps everybody in line so that Ra will continue to bless them each day, conquering the underworld, rising again with the sun to bring light and water on the boat that he travels on to bring grain for the harvest, sustaining the life cycle of food and water. It's not only the Egyptians, of course. The Greeks have their gods as well. The god of the sea, Poseidon, right, with his trident. Um, Poseidon sided with the Greeks during the Trojan War, right? And you What why is that important? Well, John writes this book, likely from the city of Ephesus in Turkey, just miles south of Troy, steeped in Greek mythology. So Poseidon is the one who conquers the seas, who controls the seas and sides with the Greeks to give victory over Troy. Also, Demeter is the Greek goddess of the grain and the harvest, signifying seasons of new life, even the reoccurring new life, season after season. The pagan mythologies then are steeped with the gods providing and controlling the sea and water because those are images, pictures, sources of life. It's how life gets sustained. Of course, the Jews were taught this as well. The Jews who know that Yahweh is the God of Israel, that Yahweh claims to provide the grain for them, that Yahweh claims to control the seas, just one God controlling all of it. Remember Passover, right? What is Passover about? Passover is when the Jews are enslaved in Egypt and God says, I am going to liberate you and deliver you and I will pass over you, and if your doorposts are marked with blood from the Passover sacrifice, you will be spared. Everybody else will be put to death, and then you alone, the firstborn of everybody else, will be put to death, and you alone then will escape and be freed. So they have to eat the Passover meal, which is unleavened bread, because it doesn't have time to leaven, and they have to go quickly. And then what else do they do? They leave Egypt, and and what do they have to cross? Let's look at Exodus 14, if you'll put that slide up for me. Exodus 14, verses 13 to 15. They've left now. They're leaving Egypt, and Moses answers the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Now, why are they not moving on? Because they're standing in front of the sea. And they're like we have nowhere to go and then he tells Moses stretch out your rod and the sea parts and they walk through on dry ground and then after they cross on the other side then in Exodus chapter 16 verse 4 they're saying well great now we're on the other side what are we gonna do is starve to death in the wilderness and the Lord says to Moses I will rain down bread from heaven for you the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day and in this way I will test them so here you have God Delivering the people through the water and providing the bread that they need. Now why am I telling you all this? Because this is the backdrop for John chapter 6. This is the backdrop that John, who writes in modern-day Turkey in, in, the town, in the city of Ephesus, who is addressing the Greeks and the pagan mythologies just south of Troy of the gods who conquer the sea and provide the grain and writing to the Jews who were there about the God who conquers the sea and provides the bread what words does he have for us let's take a look and see what we will find out here in these verses it's what I'm not going to read it's a long chapter I'm going to read part of it you'll see I will tell you that at the beginning it says Passover was near John's setting it up Passover's near here's what I'm going to talk about He feeds, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. We're not going to read that. We're going to skip past that. And they all get as much as they wanted. They're filled and baskets are filled with bread at the end. The bread is supplied. They're nourished and they're fed. Jesus then withdraws up on a mountainside by himself like Moses did at Sinai. The disciples get into boats and they cross the sea in the evening when it was dark. But they run into a storm. What are they going to do this is where we're going to pick up the story in verse 16 so follow along with me john chapter 6 verse 16 i'm following um it says when evening came the disciples went down on the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for capernaum by now it was dark and jesus had not yet joined them a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough When they had moved about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only only one boat had left there, and Jesus had not entered it with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And then in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. what will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him. Side note, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness began to grumble. And they said, because they began to grumble because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I am? came down from heaven. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word and that it will be uh, fruitful for us today, that we will see how it should shape our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when encountering Jesus, if you're going to have an encounter with Jesus, you must discover who he is. You must discover why he came and discover what you should do about that. Who is Jesus? Jesus. A common objection today in our world and society is, hey, Jesus is a good guy. I like Jesus' teaching. Um, you know, he's a really, really good guy, good ethics, good values, help your compass, get a line, point north. Um, but, but divine son of God, come on, probably not. That's just kind of hyped up. Yet that's not what the biblical record shows us. It's not what the biblical record claims, at least. For instance, the first thing that we could say about who is Jesus from this text is that he is one who speaks with authority. In verse 26, if we have that verse, we can put it back on the screen. um, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, very truly, I tell you, or truly, truly. He's repeating it. He's repeating it for emphasis. And it's not only for emphasis that he's doing it. He's saying to them that I am telling you these things. And I don't need to say that Moses told you these things. See, all the other rabbis would say, well, Moses says, well, Moses says, well, Moses says. And Jesus says, you know what? I say. And when he says that, he is saying, I'm better than Moses. I have more authority than Moses. And for a Jew to say that someone has more authority than Moses, who is the very mouthpiece of God speaking to the people, they understand him to be saying, then you are saying you have the word of God. And he's saying, yes, that's what I'm saying. John tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But not only does he speak with his own authority, he claims to be and proves that he is God. In verse 20, he, uh, he does this. He walks on water. And um, do, are our slides still legit or do we have a problem where they're all gone? Okay. All right. So um so at twenty, um he walks on water. Let me read what it says. So he walks on water and he says they're they're scared and they're cu- they're coming out to him and he says, Don't be afraid, it is I. He says, It is I. Now, let me just ask you this question. If you know somebody well, this may be true, you maybe do this. Like uh you might be you're knocking on the door of somebody's house and like who is it? And you're like, It's me, because they know your voice okay in a storm when it's loud and chaotic and you're like confused and not sure what's going on and you're like who is that it's me it's not a sufficient answer usually like you're terrified you don't know if it's a ghost or what be like you think the answer would be like I know you can't see because of the driving wind the splashing waves in your face and the rain blowing you but it's me Jesus it's okay that's not what he says he says to them it is I which is the Greek way saying it's I is the same as the Hebrew way of saying I am. When Moses is leading the people from Egypt and and God says, you're going to do this, and he says, who am I to tell the people that you are? What's your name? And he says, tell them I am. What Jesus is doing here and what John is intentionally pointing out, he's saying is Jesus is saying, he's claiming I am. I am the God. I am Yahweh, the one of the Bible the one of your Old Testament whom you look forward to, it's me. He is claiming divinity. So Jesus, that's who he is. He is the divine son of God who is sent with authority. Why did he come? What, What was his purpose? You know, one objection people might raise is that say, okay, well, Jesus came and like, he came to lead a big movement and everything and and maybe even to be king or something but but that didn't work out right they squashed him the romans killed him put him on a cross that done with over why did he come he did come as a king he came to establish his kingdom we're told in verse 15 which i'm not going to go back and read but we're told in verse 15 after he he does the miracle of uh, multiplying the bread and the fish and feeding everybody it says he withdraws by a mountainside because they intended to make him king by force in other words, the people are so excited. They're like, "You can do this! You need to be our king." And Jesus is like, "I don't think so. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm bringing." And so he he escapes from them, goes, withdraws by himself somewhere else. <clears throat> they wanted him, <coughs> excuse me, to keep providing food and to kick out the Romans, to restore the land. But Jesus did not simply come to be the king of Israel. Though he is, he's in the line of the king of David. That's not why he came. He came for much bigger purposes for the whole world, as John tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Of course, Jesus is bringing shalom in his kingdom, but that's only a foretaste right now of that, of what will be later in heaven. He's coming as a king for all the nations. You know, sometimes you and I are not much different than the people there. We see something that we think Jesus does, and we're like, I like that. That's good. Okay, Jesus, if you're going to keep doing that for me, you can be my king. Which is really a way to say, Jesus, will you be my puppet that I can control and make sure that you give me what I want, rather than be my king. Right? I mean, think about this, right? Sometimes we want Jesus. We are like Jesus. I'm good with Jesus. Jesus, protect my way of life. Keep me safe and happy. Give me all the necessary stuff and the fun stuff I want too. If if that's Jesus, if he didn't do that and make those miracles, yeah, you'd be my king. Right? Materialism. This is a big temptation for us, for me, right? I, I want God to bless me so that I can live the good life. And when he doesn't, then do I ask, is God really enough? I think I could be happier with, with this or that. And never quite satisfied, always looking for more, right? Just a little more will make me happy. But Christ is saying, I am the bread, that your daily bread. Just like the man in the wilderness, just like the prayer he teaches his disciples to pray, give us our daily bread. Another way that we're kind of like the people here when they want to make Jesus king is, is when it comes around to politics and nationalism. Right, this is a touchy subject, but let's think with me on this for a second here. They want to make Jesus king because they want him king of Israel, right? Sometimes we, we would like this too. We want Jesus to make, make us his favorite country. I want to tell you the United States is not God's favorite country. You need to hear that loud and clear. The United States is a great country, it's not God's favorite country. For instance, some ways that this kind of gets tangled up in our life let's just think about the Cold War. The Cold War, you have christian america let's say christian america against the atheist soviet union and what you get wrapped into that is this political ideology of god against evil us against them christ for us not for them or think about the crusades right religious wars about the way things are to be run and this is god's country or the Catholic versus Protestant kings in Europe in the Middle Ages, kings and queens that fought each other. I hope you can see what I'm suggesting, that if we say nationalism where God makes us the favorite country is highly dangerous, is not scriptural, and leads to idolatry, where you make your country the thing you must have to be enough. Now, I also want you to hear me say this patriotism is not a bad thing. The Bible instructs us to pray for our leaders and to submit to our leaders. And that's in every place, wherever people live. To to feel good about the country you live in, to be patriotic to it, is, is noble. But don't equate our country with God's country. Because the whole world is God's. And everything in it, the scripture tells us, he made all people, all tribes, tongues, and nations. And Jesus came and told his disciples, to go to all the nations. Most were not friendly to Christians. The kingdom Christ came to establish as people gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the kingdom we're a part of, God's kingdom. Every time we gather for worship, we are committing, and this may be hyperbole, hyperbole, an act of treason. We are saying, yeah, I'm citizens of the United States, but ultimately I'm a citizen of heaven. I worship a foreign king. His name is Jesus. Right? We have to keep that straight to be good patriots, good citizens, yes, but know where the kingdom is and where it is not. We're not kingmakers. Jesus is king. We're followers of the king. So he came to establish a kingdom, but more than that, he came to do his father's will. In verse 27, it tells us that let me find verse 27. Actually, you have that one. I guess you could put that on the screen if you want. Um, Verse 27, he says to him, uh, do you have that? Yeah. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is saying, I came to do the Father's will, and his seal of approval rests on me, and to give eternal life. Not only that, Jesus came to give eternal life. He repeats that. It says it in 27 in verse 32, 40, 47, 51, 54, 57, and 58 to make it very clear that what Jesus is doing is to provide life eternally. And he comes to show that he doesn't lose. In verse 39, if you can dig that one up for me, that would be great too and put that on there. He doesn't lose. He is the Savior. He comes to win and he keeps those he comes to save. Notice this. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Right? Jesus is going to lose none. He's like, if I come to save you, I'm keeping you. I won't lose you. I don't lose. I come and I win. I'm the king and I rule over my kingdom. He's the savior who gets the job done, mission accomplished without fail. Now that's good news for you and me. Because you know what we don't do? We don't always do mission accomplished. We fail. We mess up. We make mistakes, sometimes badly. But the good news is that if Jesus saves you, he's keeping you, he's preserving you, even when you fail badly. And what that does for your life is it means that you don't follow and serve God with fear that if you mess up, you're going to get kicked out because he's keeping you. He's not getting rid of you. It means that you follow and serve God without shame. You don't go through the cycle of having to think that you're not good enough, even though we do. We don't have to do that because God rejoices over us, delights in us. We are His people, His children, whom He loves. You follow Jesus and serve Him because He liberates you, freeing you from guilt and shame, so that you walk with new life and new joy. That kind of love empowers you to obey Jesus, to walk in His ways without doing it like you're walking in drudgery but doing it with delight this comes to the end here then of the last question what must i do who is jesus why did he come what must i do they ask a question of jesus then in verse 28 and they say well, okay what are the works god requires isn't that an interesting question What are the works God requires? It's a common question. It's the natural question. Okay, if I'm going to get good with God, what are the things I need to do? Give me my checklist. Give me my to-do list. Let's get it so I can check them off, start checking them off, and make sure I'm all good. And that's a way that that gives us a sense of security or knowledge. I'm doing good. I've checked it off. I've checked it off. Gives us a sense of control. Gives us a sense of making it manageable. Like, oh, I'm probably good. I can grade myself on the checklist. And so they say, Jesus, what are these works? What is the work that God requires? And in verse 29, if you'll find this one and put it on the screen, Jesus gives a really important answer. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the work. To Have faith, to believe. To believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is saying, you have to trust me. Your value is that you are a beloved child of God, and that's enough. That God is drawing us to himself, he says in there, as we read earlier, the Father is drawing people to himself. You may think, well, what do you mean God's drawing me? I thought I was coming to God. Can't they both be true? God is drawing. What does that feel like to us? It feels like an awakening, a spiritual interest, an inclination, a drawing, a walking toward God. But that's God drawing us to himself, awakening us spiritually so that we respond with faith. That's the confirmation that God is drawing you. If you're not sure about that, and you're like, I don't know, how do I know? Respond with faith, and then you'll know that Christ is for you, that God is drawing you to himself. And the other thing that you must do is eat the bread of heaven. This is the lengthiest part of this, talking about bread. mentioned so many times, the bread, the bread, I'm the bread of, of heaven. I'm the bread of life. What does it mean? This is what I tried to show you at the beginning, that all the cultures of the world say bread is what sustains us. It's what gives us life so that we can live from day to day. It's the grain that nourishes us. And when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, even the bread of heaven, he is referring to being the one sent from God that is the thing that will sustain and give you life day in and day out. He's what sustains you. There is a verse in here I probably should explain. Um, it's verse 55, and I'll read it for you. It says, I've uh, got to find it here. Um, so he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now listen to this verse, verse 55. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. The reason I want to read this to you is because this is where the Bible gets confusing uh, or at least the interpretation of it gets confusing. So different Christian denominations have looked at that and like, so for instance, the Catholic church looks at that and says, it says it's real. And so when they serve Holy Communion, what they are saying is that after after the, the priest has blessed it and you partake of it, it actually physically changes into christ's body and christ's blood so you're literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood that's what they that's what they believe in their theology and then protestant churches went away from that and said no that's that's not what it is we're not re-sacrificing jesus in it it's not literally his flesh and blood that's not even what the disciples did they never took a bite out of his flesh and so they say it's a spiritual thing then as we do it we are spiritually recognizing this okay and there's a lot more that could be said about that My point in that is to say this, what Jesus is saying in this passage when he repeatedly talks about eating him as the bread, taking him in and eat the bread to have life, what is he saying? And he talks about the flesh. What do we do at Christmas time? What do we celebrate? That God has done what? The theological word for this is incarnation, incarnated himself, okay? The simple word is we say God came in the flesh what Jesus is saying here is unless you take me my life in the flesh you cannot have eternal life what he is saying is I am the one sent from heaven who has come and lived in the flesh and lived the perfect life you could never live died the perfect sacrifice to, satisfy, forgi- to make forgiveness possible and satisfy all sins. I am the one who came in the flesh and has provided salvation. You and your flesh cannot do that. And that's why you must take me. That's, what, that's the, uh, the simplest way I can put it. That's what he's saying. If you want eternal life, you've got to know that. You've got to trust that Jesus is enough. That he lived the life you could never perfectly li- live and died the death you deserve, that he's enough for you. And when we celebrate this meal, that's the thing we're saying. We're saying, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough. You're everything I need. Because you came in the flesh. To really eat of his flesh is to find that nourishment and satisfaction in him. To believe in the one he sent, to trust in the perfect life Jesus lived that you could never live. He is your daily bread. Each day, your life is reminded and finds value in that Jesus loves you and gave himself for you, that he is the bread you need. Make it your prayer when you wake up each morning, something like this. Jesus, be enough for me today. Be my daily bread. Be enough for me today. Sustain me. Satisfy me with your goodness Be my daily bread yeah 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 i know that you've heard that a hundred times remember israel in the wilderness they they travel they follow god they've seen god's amazing signs like crazy stuff happens sea parts and they walk through on dry ground and yet what do they struggle to know they struggle to know that god will be enough what about the disciples who are following jesus they're seeing him in the flesh multiplying fish and loaves. Yet they struggle to know, is he enough? And still you may say, many people say, just give me a sign. I just need a sign. Show me a miracle and then I will believe. Verse 36, Jesus tells, you've seen the signs and yet you still do not believe. The signs are not all there is to this. It has to be an act of faith. One day, my son and his friend were sitting on our deck talking, and I was with them. And um, his friend is not a Christian and was asking lots of questions. He's like, if I, could just, if I could just see God do a miracle, if I could see a sign, then I would believe. He's like, it, for instance, if that tree right now in your backyard got struck by lightning and just exploded, I'd believe. And he's like, watching it. <sighs> see? my response to him was we always look for signs God sent the sign his name is Jesus he lived he died he rose from the dead that's better than lightning in my book faith is not just being wowed by signs it's being captivated by Christ's love mercy and grace the Bible tells us it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance so you want to eat the bread take him into your life find that Christ is good enough for you on good days and bad days obey him even when others won't because you know that even in the struggle he's enough that he's the God who walks on water he's the God of the grain and the bread that sustains you and gives you life we didn't read this far but in verse 66 it says that was a hard teaching and after that many of his followers turned away it's too much, can't do it. I don't know if you're going to be enough, Jesus. I'm turning away. Sadly, many have turned away in the last few years. Yet some didn't turn away. He says to the disciples, he turns to him to Peter, and he says, "What about you? Will you leave me too?" And Peter's answer is interesting. He says, "Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of." life. You're enough. Is he enough for you? Is he enough? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to know that you really are enough for us, that you will sustain us in that, that you will be our daily bread. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.